With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales, wherever you are in the world. Today, we have a very well-known protocol project, UMA, with us today. Uh, but I have a special co-host, so I'd like to go ahead and let Alan Matheson uh, from Golden Pear. Alan, will you give an intro real quick, just so everyone knows uh, that I have a slightly different co-host today and, and where you come from? Sure, I got some uh, big shoes to fill, but uh, happy to try. Um, my name is Alan Matheson. I'm the founder of a fund called Golden Pear Capital. We run a sophisticated portfolio of crypto uh, investments for, for high net worth uh, individuals. Um, I've actually had the pleasure of, of knowing and meeting uh, Hart uh, for, a little, for a little while, well, knowing him for a little while and meeting a couple of times. Um, so I'm uh, really excited to, uh, to, to get this off, off and going. Hart. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, no, Jay, Alan, thanks for having me. Um, really a pleasure to be here, part of the community. Um, happy to get into happy to get into it with you guys. Good. So, where did you? Um, so, so Hart, let's go ahead and, and start back. What was your first exposure to you know cryptocurrencies, and and when and at what point along that lines did you suddenly go, this is this is real. This is where I need to be. So I'm, I'm one of those lucky guys that um, knew Fred Ursum, the co-founder of Coinbase, before he was the co-founder of Coinbase. Um, so my entry is it's by pure luck. Um, I was at Goldman Sachs. I'm about five years older than Fred. And we had kind of similar paths in um, where we were computer science backgrounds, then on trading desks. Um, I happened to work with some really great people on the rates trading desk. He worked with less great people on the FX trading desk and just you know, wasn't having a great time there. But we became friends um, and buddies. And he is my entry into crypto from fairly early days um, and convinced me to get involved and learn more about it, which was uh, really a gift and just some good luck. That's fabulous. So um, when when you started, you know, looking looking at becoming a business inside Web3, what was your first, what was the first projects? What was the first thoughts? And, you know, kind of for a group of entrepreneurs um, in the early days, what, what was that like trying to convince people that this technology even exists? Yeah, I mean, so I look at crypto in general as this um, mechanism to program incentive structures. And I, I think for your audience, this is um, honestly super fascinating when you think about like, hey, a lot of what we've done in entrepreneurship is actually trying to create incentive structures, but probably in less pure ways, you know, marketing, trying to incentivize people to buy things, like selling in any case, build a good product, get people to do use it. Um, finance, I think, is sort of this structure of incentive structures. Um, but crypto is like the purest way that you can go and literally encode, um, program the logic of what you want to try to compel people to do. And that exists at like multiple levels, every all the way down to like how Bitcoin itself works um, in trying to secure the network um, to how all these decentralized finance protocols work. And yeah, Jay, like when I was sitting around here, I, I sort of had some past businesses and all that, but I, I'm sitting around with some time thinking about how finance isn't global 
And this is back before uh, DeFi was even a phrase. So decentralized finance or open finance wasn't yet a phrase. Sitting here thinking that finance is weirdly localized, like when you go and you um, you create uh, a fintech business, you don't create a global fintech business. You create one like in the U.S. or in the U.K. Um, and that just seemed backwards in um, the way of our Internet-based world. And stumbled upon, upon or got deeper into Ethereum and smart contract programming languages and realized this would be a great substrate to actually build financial contracts and have this vision for what a, a global contracting system would look like. And so in all honesty, the way I got into this was just sitting here thinking like, hey, um, all right, this crypto stuff is very cool. I have a finance background and a computer science background, and I like to program incentive structures. What are the financial innovations that need to exist um, for this parallel financial contracting system to, to exist? So when when you started started this the the Uma project and you know going now and and, and again a nice mature project and, and doing Veroil and as a disclosure I I know I own some Uma I don't know how much or which wallet it's in anymore I'd have to go hunt it down um, but 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 you know clearly I've 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 looked in and admired the project for a long time from a tr- from a tradfi guy did you have a hard time decoupling your brain from the regions and the nations and the restrictions that you have in TradFi to suddenly it's a global currency, a global incentive structure that you have. What, was, was that a hard thing for you to, to you know, suddenly take like five, six, seven, ten steps back? Um, or did you try fighting the regulation from the ground up? Um, I'll go back on the regulation thing maybe later on. But Jay, like... I mean, I'm, I'm a weird dude, so I don't know. That's I, I can. It's kind of fun to think about some of the stuff differently. Um, You're amongst friends, uh, then. <laughs> exactly. Like, let's we can be weird and wonderful. But the the thing that I like want to pound the table about is just like this is so fucking cool. Um, we have a contracting system in the world today that's the TradFi legal contracting system, and it actually works really great. Uh, 150, 200 year history is responsible for most of the financial products and services we've created. Actually, tangent here. When I look at the history of, when I look at financial products and services, what they really are are legal contracts, in my opinion, for the most part. Um, Like insurance is a very pure example. Derivatives are a very pure example. Um, But even like your brokerage accounts and how stuff are, are held, like you only know you have that money because it's enforced by uh, legal recourse, traditional legal recourse. And the contracting mechanism that we've built through that legal structure uh, has, again, worked really well, but it's not the only one that can exist. And so kind of the, the, the big, like, aha moment, I guess, for me is to think through, hey, we've got this TradFi contracting system. It's cool. What if we were, though, to imagine another system that is actually pseudo-anonymous by default? Um, and we can talk about why that's actually kind of interesting. But... Um, is global by default and is actually enforced entirely differently. It's enforced only through economic incentives. Um, And, you know, like, hey, we have the tools to build an alternative contracting system. That seems like a big deal. And there might be trade-offs here between the two systems. But this other system seems really interesting and worth exploring. No, and it's fascinating when, you know, again, we spend so much time on Trying to help people understand that Web three is real. Web three is yeah. coming, and and 
in my view, and, and whether you shared it or not, it's unstoppable at this point, regardless of any sanctions, any regulation. It's Pandora's box has been opened. You can you can minorly slow it, you, but certainly it's coming. So the thought of, and I've said before publicly, I, I believe that all, you know, all or most legal contracts in the future will be smart contracts. Um, you know, judge rules on it. Here's where it is. No one has to get involved in, in those types of things. Do you feel like that's a good, good direction uh, that we're moving? Um, I do. I, again, I think there's trade-offs here, right? And yeah. I don't want to like undermine the, um, the good things that have come out of like the, Pro, the, the legal contracting system that has gotten us to where we are today. And again, I think for your audience and for um, people in the U.S. and Canada, um, the traditional systems actually worked pretty well for the most part, right? Yeah. Um, but I'll go back and, and, and say that the idea, like, we were talking about this a little bit before we started, right? But um, if you go and you create a fintech business today, you create a fintech business that is localized in, yeah, like in the US, like Wealthfront or Betterment are kind of great examples I like uh, too. These are those mm-hmm. robo-advisor businesses. And it always seemed crazy to me that in the era of, uh, of Facebook or Twitter or like truly global businesses that are accessible almost everywhere, we'll, we'll leave aside like the China firewall for a second, but truly global businesses that are available almost everywhere, you start a fint an internet business that only serves the U.S. And then in Canada, there's a copycat called Wealth Simple. Actually, not a, they're a very, a very good business. I like them a lot. But Canada has a separate business called Wealth Simple. There's a different yep. one in the U.K. They're not global businesses, right? The and, econ- you but, lose all economies of scale. It, but it just doesn't make sense. It's like supposed to be the internet, right? Um, and so why is that? And the reason is that the root product they're offering, like financial services, are are only available to people within that legal jurisdiction. And the contracting mechanism that they offer their product is actually like the, the contracts are different in the different jurisdictions. And they have mm-hmm. it's like a different product. And that seems kind of crazy uh, to me. Um, and so again, um, exploring an alternative contracting system that doesn't rely uh, doesn't have those features and is actually global by default seems very promising and seems like it could be a good thing for the world in aggregate when you actually do have innovations that could come from anywhere in the world and be accessible anywhere in the world. That seems like it should be a good thing if you look at the history of like technological innovations. It, and I it's, think it's, you know, there, there's so much to be said for, for the globalization of, of, which never really happened for the internet. I think you're, you're bringing up a point that doesn't really get spoken a lot, which is the internet is not global. The internet is regional at best. Um, yes, you can use the same piece of, of hardware and you can take it anywhere in the world, but you're connecting to centralized DNS servers. You can use a VPN and bypass it, but you're just leaving one centralized area and going to the next. Um, or blockchain is, is blockchain. And, and so, you know, along that thesis, do you see TradFi going quietly in this direction or are they going to kind of, you know, what, what's your feeling on, on the restrictions along those lines? I think the, the, the TradFi DeFi thing, and I'll maybe have a bit of a contrarian view here. Um, yeah. People kind of think, oh, yeah, 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 TradFi is going to adopt DeFi. It's going to be this big deal. Right. Um, 
And I will say that I think that there are a bunch of reasons why that's going to be extremely difficult. Um, and um, I, again, this maybe like highlight how early we are in this too. But like the entire TradFi system is based around this concept of legal recourse. You know who you're dealing with and you can go and like sue them or lock them up in jail or accuse them of fraud or whatever else, right? And this DeFi system is not based on that. It's based on something entirely different. And the the connection between the two is messy. And I think that... Um, the I, I I I think that the inter intersection between the two it's going to take a long time to figure out, um, and it, it'll there'll be an intersection, but I, I think we're still five years away from even kind of having clarity around what that's going to look like. I totally agree. If I may, sorry, Jay. Like, there's going to be both conflict and and well, it'll evolve. It'll evolve both through conflict and through opportunity. Um. What do you think it looks like? I mean, what do you think within the next five to seven years? Do you think that TradFi come in and you're going to have like an Aave fork that um, that is JP Morgan branded? Or I don't know, like what are some prognostications for how you think that both the conflict and the opportunities will will develop? Yeah, I mean, so like Ave actually did do something interesting here that didn't like quite work. They had something called Ave Arc that I don't know if you guys have paid attention to or heard I think about. It's still relatively new. Yeah, there. Yeah, it's had uh, I think one one or two banks kind of publicly take it up. It's, yeah, it's I, yeah. Well, I think it's a really interesting concept. The overall concept, yeah. and it actually I like this example that you brought up, Alan, because I think it actually highlights this point well and highlights maybe some of the challenges here where. Aave, the DeFi protocol, no one knows who you are. It's anonymous and it, it does its thing and it's worked well, right? Um, but banks can't touch it because they need to know who they're dealing with and you need recourse and all those sorts of things. So Aave Arc, and I'm, I'm going to keep this at a very high level because I'm not an expert in it, but the basic idea is let's fork Aave and make it so that everyone that interacts is a known like KYC entity and is basically a financial institution, right? Um, and so then you have banks and known people, a small subset of people using this si this separate forked version of Aave, right? And that's okay, kind of interesting. But then what you really need is you need somebody that can put a foot in both worlds, somebody that can both be a regulated financial entity and interact with Aave Arc and can also be anonymous on the standard Aave platform and like port money between them. Um, and I, I think like, that actually could be a really interesting place to be, probably like great arbitrage opportunity, like literally free money because interest rate differentials between them or something like that. But kind of a hard place to be from a regulatory perspective because like, wait, you know, I've uh, you, who can actually do that? Um, and I think it's a great actual mental model for how I see DeFi and TradFi existing where you have this anonymous DeFi thing that is enforced by economic incentives alone, no concept of identity. And then you have TradFi, which is enforced through legal recourse. Everybody, you know who people are and you can go and sue them. And then they're going to operate independently. And then there's going to be this sort of ARB opportunity between them. Um, and I think that's kind of fascinating. So, so you brought up a, a point. I'm going to jump right on it. KYC. <laughs> And 
you know, without drawing too many parallels, you know, there was Pirate Bay showed up and, and kind of really popularized the fact that you could, you know, trade or, or do lots of, lots of things with digital files o- online. Um, and, and eventually somebody figured out how to legally do it. And now we have, you know, Apple Music and Spotify and Pandora and all these other things. And, and Pirate Bay still exists, but it's a very small subset of people. Do you feel that we're going to be pushed into a KYC world for for blockchain and DeFi with these wallets to where what we're thinking of today as as this anonymous level, and that's where everyone's really happy, is going to be pushed down into a very small subset um, and the KYC, because that's, let's be clear, that's where the governments and, and everyone else wants to see this for adoption. And that's where institutions, you know, are, are kind of waiting for. Um, but what's, what's your thoughts on that? Jay, I think that's a very good question. And I think also that model of like what happened with, um, you know, Torrance and Pirate Bay and then like um, Apple and Spotify and all that made streaming uh, exist, right? That model I also think is very apt um, here too. And I don't think enough crypto people think about this possibility or assign a high enough probability to that happening. Um, They're like very idealistic. And I'll take a I'll take an optimistic approach here where I think either way isn't a bad outcome, actually. Um, uh, there's some downsides to this too, but the problem with like um, the Apple and Spotify, the model you have about like, um, you know, everyone KYCs and big companies adopt this. What you're really also saying is large centralized players are become the linchpins of this like DeFi or crypto thing. And I think that there is a much higher risk of that happening, or probably, I won't even frame it negatively, there's a much higher probability of that happening than I think a lot of crypto people um, realize, where just all of the regulatory, governmental, and just frictions make it so that there are a handful of large entities that kind of are your gateways to this supposedly like decentralized system. And um, what I'll say that's positive about this is that even in that path, which seems very anti-crypto and seems like it like uh, disregards many of the principles behind the whole idea here, even in that path, I would say that on the margin, the consumer is better off, that they'll have like more services, more choice, more products, like a better feature set in the same way that like streaming music through Apple or streaming movies through Netflix is a better product offering than like having to buy DVDs and deal with the RIAA or whatever it is before that, right? Yeah, we won't even go down that path. Alan, what's your thoughts exactly. on that? Same, same topic. Jeez, oh, man, it's complicated. And I think, um, but I, I totally agree with Hart in that there is, there's a bit of conflict between, I think, like traditional crypto values about decentralization and uh, pseudonymity um, and I think the that probably a lot of the folks who control a lot of the way that this is going to develop need to take a very principled approach or be prepared to lose. And it, it, it'll start looking very much like a traditional system. Um, but the way this shakes out, I think, is still so it's so dynamic, like to... Um, First of all, I think you've got different groups of, tradi- of traditional financial institutions that will come on at different times and in different ways. 
Um, so you're like small community bank is probably more willing to pay play that role of you know sitting between DeFi and TradFi and just kind of using Aave Arc to to ARB. Whereas I think, and that's a sort of different indicator, I would say, as to like institutional adoption compared to like JP Morgan launches a fork of Aave with like the JP Morgan brand all over it or whatever it is. Terrifying. And I think there's a different kind of attitude and a different kind of like set of principles that need to be defended across both of those different uh, scenarios. But to just lump like institutional adoption into one lump, I think is is probably not quite nuanced enough. Um, and it and the way this develops with the regulatory, both from a regulatory uh, point of view, but also how how those bridges get built and what principles are embedded in them, I think is 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 kind of really the most interesting part. And uh, I guess that's somewhere where infrastructure will be really important. And yeah. one of those pieces of infrastructure, I think, is is likely to be UMA. I mean, it's a it's a very sophisticated building block and mechanism, uh, Oracle, that a lot of these potential um, bridges and capabilities can be used. So, um, I don't know, maybe we should uh, talk a little bit about, uh, about UMA. Yeah, let's, let's take a second and, and Hart, <clears throat> give, a, give us the you know overview for, I mean, I, I know a number of people are, are familiar with UMA or have seen it on Coinbase or a variety of places, but, but give us the, that high level of, of UMA uh, as it exists today. Yeah, and you know, Jay, I think what I'll give you guys is the secret master plan version, because um, that's always more fun, too. Yeah, done. Because <laughs> um, we've been around for a while, and we've kind of like had a path here from before DeFi existed again as a term, um, and we kind of had this vision, we need to do explain it in a certain way, and can talk about how we got there. But what, what UMA is today, or what we think that what our secret master plan is, is that we are this thing we call an optimistic oracle. And um, I'll go into more detail what that is, but the, the theory here or the vision is that this optimistic oracle will be a critical piece of infrastructure for building decentralized contracts. And um, so like going back to what I was talking about in terms of their like DeFi being an alternative contracting system, just a different way of writing contracts, you can imagine that a smart contract platform like Ethereum can do all the conditional logic, like if this, then that, all that stuff is all embedded in that and it works beautifully. But in order to write interesting contracts, you also need to know things that don't live on the blockchain itself. Like I need to know whether, you know, uh, the price of something, or I need to know whether a certain metric was hit or a certain deliverable happened, things that like things that don't exist just on a blockchain. Um, and that's like the supposed Oracle problem that they talk about in crypto. How do I get information off the blockchain onto it? And our optimistic Oracle is a very um, specific way of doing that that's extremely flexible in the sense that you can ask any knowable question to this service and get an answer back. Um, Define the, the types of, of metrics that these Oracles answering questions about. So we can answer a question about like literally anything that's knowable, but it could be what's the total value locked in a given protocol. Uh, it could be, uh, again, something around price or like what was the average volume, like literally any kind of number. 
Um, we're also supporting a prediction market called uh, Polymarket right now. If you guys are familiar with that, Polymarket lets you bet on who won an election or like what sports team won or like any kind of like information like that. Polymarket actually lets you um, make a bet on who's winning or who's losing. Um, and they use our optimistic Oracle to resolve um, those, those data bits. So, or that to resolve those answers. And, and so the answer here is like what's happened in DeFi to date um, the Oracle design that people have been focused on is something that just reports sort of standard price data. Like what's the price of Ethereum? What's the price of Bitcoin? What's the price of, you know, top 100 crypto coins? Um, and there's a specific mechanism how that works where you're basically like taking API data and recording it onto a blockchain and saying this is correct. And um, the biggest kind of uh, biggest Oracle in this space that operates that way is something called Chainlink. That's a, a large project. Um, but you can't use Chainlink um, to credibly go and ask an arbitrary question. Um, it doesn't work. And so instead, we have a very different design where this optimistic oracle, uh, you ask it a question, hey, what? who won the Super Bowl? Who won election XYZ? Um, did uh, What's the price of gold? Whatever it might be. Anyone can go and um, respond with an answer. And that answer gets taken as truth provided nobody disputes it within a given challenge window. If it is disputed within that challenge window, it gets escalated to all of our token holders who vote in this game theoretic, very interesting like crypto economic system where we can prove with math that the voters will show will, will come up with the right answer, the correct answer, uh, provided there's not a bribe larger than half of our market cap. I can go into that whole detail later. Basically, it's a very cool crypto-ethnic system where you ask a question and you get an answer. Um, and then going back to like the secret master plan here, like why this is a critical point uh, piece of infrastructure, if we're going to write interesting contracts, like interesting financial contracts or otherwise within crypto, we are going to need to ask questions like this. You're going to need to be able to ask real-world questions or off-chain data questions. And so I think as Web3 grows and as it like sort of swallows more, um, more industries, more types of thing, more types of businesses, the use case for or the need to say, hey, did this other thing happen or what's the right answer to this becomes bigger and bigger. So, hey, can I, uh, I mean, I've been involved, or I've loved Uma for a long time and, and, and owned it for long time. Um, but one of the things that I loved most was actually some of the stuff that you got designed around like KPIs and success. Um, I think that really beautifully outlines, um, you know, the kind of creativity that's available where we look at some sort of a mix of, you know, things that people run their companies with and they understand some TradFi kind of vehicles. And you guys seem to have kind of combined several things and come up with a, a, a very innovative kind of a, a system that that is just just flourishing, just blossoming, and just flourishing. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about more of that, a little bit more about that. Yeah, totally, Alan. And like this is an example of if you if you go back in our history, right? Um, before we sort of focused on this Oracle thing, we were trying to showcase why DeFi mattered in the first place, right? Um, and again, like this is. Because again, two years ago, DeFi didn't matter. Nobody gave a shit, right? Um, it's <laughs> it's pretty fresh. And one of the use cases here is like we came up with this idea of what we call synthetic tokens. 
like we could create a token that tracks um, some indice. And to, to kind of explain our secret master plan here, um, the tracking required our Oracle, like, hey, we need to like understand what the payout should be. But in this process, we came across this idea that we're calling KPI options. And it came from a lot of these other uh, DAOs or other crypto projects that are sitting on huge treasuries of their own token. So let's just call it DAO XYZ is sitting on a pile of XYZ tokens. Um, and they want to do useful things with them. And what we kind of realized is like, well, shit, like take some of those tokens, put them in a contract, a contract that we've created um, that splits it into two tokens. We'll call it a long token and a short token. And that long token um, can have a payout function that says, hey, if, if DAO XYZ achieves this objective, you're going to get a payout of one token or two tokens or whatever else. And now we can go and give that to our community. And all of a sudden, we've inspired them. We've built an army of Project XYZ token holders um, or KPI option token holders, I should say. We built this army that's out there trying to achieve this objective because they get a payout. And it's it's going back to what we talked about at the beginning, incentive structure design. Like we're just programming an incentive structure. And what's kind of cool about this is we're programming a collective incentive structure. Like now you're incentivized to have the collective achieve this goal because everybody gets a payout if it happens. Oh, and by the way, if we achieve that objective, it's also good for Project XYZ. So we all win. How, how is the, the overall adoption of other chains? Because you, you work with a variety of, of L1s, correct? Yep. How is how is that ecosystem you know flushing out? Because there's always the maximalists, you know, and and you know if you're kind of an ETH person, then then yes, there are alternatives. They're called L2s that feed into ETH, but but in the rest for the rest of us, you know, there there's a growing group of L1s. There's a lot of L2s, and there's going to continue to be more. <clears throat> how how does Uma make sense of of the fact that there's dozens of oracles. There's dozens of, of different things that are moving and flowing at a certain time. How do you guys help bring all that into, into a, a usable fold and that, that people want to use versus saying, I'm just going to go make my own? Jay, another good question. I mean, again, like build... It's what I, it's what I do professionally. I'm unpaid <laughs> to do so. I mean, build something people want, make it easy for them. Like, if you kind of think of, like, the buy versus build conundrum, like, make it so they want to buy, like, again, or buy, or buy your tech, use your tech versus build their own, you know? Um, and there's real reasons why, uh, like, this optimistic Oracle design is so useful because we've built this infrastructure that you can ask these questions to, and it's available on a bunch of L2s, on Ethereum, and, like, increasingly on other chains. And so a developer can go and plug into this seamlessly without having to roll their own. Um, and that's that's helpful. Um, but kind of the other flavor to your question here, too, is, like, hey, we're in this multi-chain, multi-roll-up world. It's a freaking mess, right? There's so much going on. It's hard to keep track of what's happening. It, makes your head hurt um and like maybe as a separate point you know we just kind of like put our heads down and do what we think makes the most sense and don't worry about capturing everything because you can't you know so, so as long as i have you and you're an oracle expert i'm gonna ask this question how can who is and how are the wrapped 
and multi-wrapped coins actually being tracked. So let's take Bitcoin for a perfect example. We know exactly how many Bitcoins there are, but then there's wrapped Bitcoins. And then there's wrapped Bitcoins that are then staked and then put into something else. Is there any, is there anyone or are you guys able to track and say, you know, for market cap, because we don't want to count these twice. They never want to be counted twice. We want to know that the true, whether it's wrapped or unwrapped or staked, whatever the case is. Is there is it happening today that we're getting a true count of of uh, wrapped versus unwrapped? And if not, is is there a way to to actually solve that problem? Oh, uh, so there's definitely double, triple, or like five x counting happening all over the place. Um, I knew it. Uh, I knew it. But like, I mean, I think that's true in TradFi too, right? Like, um, oh, Trad TradFi will just make extra stock just to <laughs> just to screw everyone up. Uh, so like, like, there's probably look, we could probably spend an hour talking about your question here too. But like, hey, Bitcoin, we got like I'm our good 21 on t- million. I'm good on time. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, we got our 21 million Bitcoin. They exist on the Bitcoin blockchain. Great, well and good, right? Yep. Um, I then go and I buy wrapped Bitcoin, which I'm trusting um, BitGo, right, to say, hey, the, the, the centralized kind of uh, trustee of this WBTC, and there's a few other people involved, but I'm trusting BitGo go to say, hey, this WBTC I'm buying on the Ethereum blockchain is fully backed by one Bitcoin somewhere else, right? So there is no new Bitcoin created yet, um, but uh, if I trust go and trust this mechanism but you know you go and go on like coin gecko or something and the wbtc market cap and the bitcoin market cap we're now summing up to like we're doubling up things right and then i take my my wbtc and i go deposit in badger uh, which is another uh, DeFi protocol that we've done some work with and i get my um my staked wbtc right um, yeah. and then that goes in Badger's TVL and that goes up too. And, you know, that asset represents something and I could probably sell it to a guy who pays like a Bitcoin for it because he believes he can unstake it to get the Bitcoin, which he could then take back to WBTC to go get the original Bitcoin. Like, you know, you, but you can track all this stuff and it's useful, you know, but, but no one's doing it. Is that, um, is that is that by is that by design or is that by you know just the fact that it, we're so early that it would confuse people? Well, people like people are probably you could probably do this, but it's like it's sort of in everyone has aligned incentives in the industry right now to be like, hey, the total value locked in DeFi is the biggest number possible. So it's not exactly like. Again, if we keep talking about incentives here, which I really think is kind of everything, uh, people have an incentive to pad that number and make it look like we've got $200 billion of TVL and DeFi, um, right? And like, it's not really causing any harm. They're like, okay, sure, cool. Listen, it's, yeah. it's an unregulated space. We can we can do whatever we want. We can make our own tokens and, and, and you know have fun until the SEC shows up. Um, you know, Alan, you had a number of, of questions, uh, you know, kind of around this. So I'm gonna I'm gonna let you kind of uh, have it hard for a minute. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I I'd actually love to get get back to a little bit about um, some of the fun stuff that you guys did with the 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 community, the Uma, Uma community. Um, and I know that you you use some of your own products uh, to incentivize a group 
the superhumans. And uh, I thought that was a really interesting application, not only of your own, um, you know, protocol, your own, your own product, but also you seem to have incentivized this community um, that's, you know, um, uh, positive and engaging and uh, really has done a lot to spread the good word of what UMA is and how it works. Um, I'd love to hear more about, about, about that. Yeah, I mean, this is like a crazy story of in uh, of inspiring this weird and wonderful community of people um, that are kind of anonymous people on the internet, and it's just wild and makes your head hurt. Um, the more I think about or get to know these these superhumans as they're called, the more it makes my head hurt because I'm like, where do these people come from, and how is this possible, and does this make any sense? And I don't understand, but it's great, and it's also very positive. So what's the origin story here? So we have this KPI option idea um, and we decide to use it in our own community. And so we airdrop a bunch of KPI options that say, hey, if UMA's TVL, if the total value locked in our protocol goes up, um, you guys are going to get a a payout of UMA. Um, And I forget exactly what the range was, but like, you know, you could get, let's just say it's between one and 10 UMA tokens. for each KPI option you have, depending on how high our TVL is. Um, And we airdrop this to a bunch of people and they show up in our Discord server and they're like, hey, like, what do we do? Like, and we're like, hey, well, kind of an experiment. We're trying to get our TVL up. Maybe go like, let's go try to get our TVL up however you want to do that. And again, leave it super open-ended as to like what the answer might be. Um, And what happened is these people got kind of into it and we're having a fun time. And remember there's an expiry date on this. So this expired at like the, the end of the quarter and we get to the end of the quarter and actually the whole crypto market kind of tanks, which means our TVL goes down and no one really gets much of a payout. They kind of get like a smallish payout. Um, and it didn't really work to be honest, like just kind of some bad luck. And yet what happened is all these people were sitting around in our discord and they're like, hey, like, okay, like, what's next? And um, we did another one. We're like, okay, so these people that we're now calling the superhumans that are really excited about our community, um, they're motivated to come and build or promote us or just get involved. And we're honestly, they were having a great time doing it. So we're like, hey, okay, here's the next TVL option. This is going to be for the number of integrations we have. Um, and the superhumans actually went out there and functioned like a sort of an organic sales force to sell our products into other DAOs because they were motivated to increase the number of integrations we had. And that was, that was pretty wild. Um, and I thought it was amazing. Turned, like, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. No, please. I mean, I thought please. it was amazing as someone who's operated businesses, you know, you know that like um, payment for a job is one thing, but it's not the biggest motivator. And here you had this group of this community that was created that was, all of a sudden empowered. And I think it's a truly crypto kind of story where there, I mean, there were people from all walks of life, from all parts of the world who were just like, yeah, I'm going to like roll up my sleeves and get involved here with another group of people. And the incentive started it, but the real incentive at the end of the day was really actually just kind of building this community. And was that where Across came from? Was that sort of the roots of Across? Um, across didn't come from that so much. 
Actually, we'll get on that in a second and tell everybody what the hell lacrosse is. But yeah. to the last point, Alan, like, yeah, it's it's wild, right? Like, I and I, I fully agree with what you're saying. The financial incentive isn't the main driver. It was like the seed. And yeah. um, I by no means consider myself an expert in building these communities or anything like that. Um, other people on our team I actually think are, are quite skilled at it. But we've all collectively learned that the key here is having both components. It's like having the the kind of financial incentive um, shows, I think it shows from, uh, it shows that there's like an actual care here, like you really actually give a shit um, and it seeds things and gets the ball rolling. But in order to make it be actually successful, we need there to be some other like non-financial, non-monetary incentive that's much more community focused. And, um, you know, this is the part that's also super fun about this crypto and Web3 thing here um, is we've like figuring out how to program that incentive structure on both financial and kind of almost like psychological ways and building a community that is its own thing. And like to to cut to the end of the story, the super humans now are their own DAO. They formed their own DAO that's actually independent of UMA. Um, uh, they make the plan is they'll make funding requests kind of quarterly to get additional funds, um, but they're this auto- uh, like autonomous independent organization that's just out there to do good things. Like they're now incentive structures do things such that UMA token holders want to fund them, and like what that looks like, who knows? You know, and so um, it so kind of addresses <clears throat> this challenge that I think exists with UMA, which is that. Like you've built a beautiful infrastructure and sometimes building infrastructure is hard because especially in something as as nascent as crypto, because you can tell people about it and it paints a beautiful picture, but people are often left kind of scratching their heads thinking like, well, that's great. What am I supposed to use it for? What do I do with it? And that seems to have been a sort of ongoing challenge for Uma. And yet now it seems like super humans are working on it. And then you've also got stuff like a cross. Um, which is a which is again another amazingly uh, interesting project. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, totally. Just uh, so what a cross is is a is a bridge that lets you move tokens between layer two rollups um, and Ethereum. And um, for some context here, the way layer two rollups, specifically optimistic rollups like Arbitrum or Optimism, the way they're built is it takes seven days to get your tokens from layer two back to Ethereum, which is problematic. Um, I think that's like a, that's like a six months in crypto. Yeah. Seven. Seven. In, a, in a week's oh, time, God. we went down 80% and, and Uma's gone up like 30% just today. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know about that. It's crazy. But uh, yeah, exactly. So it's like um, kind of not great, right? Um, so across stemmed out of this realization that we're sitting here looking at the stuff and being like, okay, that's problematic. Um, one of the things that you need to design a system to solve for that. So the general like underlying this, how do you solve for that? Well, you get a bunch of people that have money on Ethereum that are willing to make a seven day loan to somebody trying to get their money out quickly. And like they charge a small amount for that. So like the con- the overarching concept is super simple. Like, hey, it natively takes me seven days to get my money out. Um, somebody else is willing to make me a seven-day loan for like a small fee. And it's totally worth it to me to pay that pretty small fee in order to get my money instantly. Um, 
the challenge in building this, like when we think through this, is we need an oracle. We need to know whether that deposit on L2 happened, right? And we need to know that on layer one. And our optimistic oracle design here works beautifully because we can ask the question, was were these funds deposited on layer two? And we can get an answer. And so what across became was uh, like a, like an internal hack project to build this layer two bridge, this cross-chain bridge. They use the optimistic oracle to quickly and easily solve this problem of like, did this deposit action happen on the other chain? What happened is that like, cause our, our engineering team is very, very good. Um, they built a really awesome product that actually has the lowest fees, uh, fastest speeds and the best security. Like I really think we've built a better bridge than our competition out there. And across, uh, it works really well, um, does great volume. The volume is actually going like up into the right right now as layer two grows. And um, it's really cool. And then we made this other promise that we were going to like give ownership of this protocol to um, the across community and use it as a way to try to build the across community too. Uh, and that experiment is in progress, but like, you know, the viewership here should go and join the across discord because we really are trying to have this community take over um, ownership of this L2 bridge. So I'm going to jump right into the word community. Yep. And, um, and you're welcome to uh, respond anyway, but my, my personal theses and, and that of why whales that we're moving forward with on a number of things is that in web three, whatever Web3 ends up becoming, and we certainly know some of the underlying technologies that, that will exist, uh, but it's not here yet. But in Web3, communities, properly organized communities, will have just as much, if not more power, than current Fortune 500 companies do today. Do you subscribe to that? Yes or no? Um, so communities are messy, right? I mean, I think Fortune 500 companies are messy too, but they're messy in a different way. Um, mm -hmm. Communities are messy where um, you uh, don't have control over them per se. Um, there's a bunch of people in the community that are probably doing things that maybe aren't actually that effective or useful, right, to the overarching aim of uh, the thing. It's just they're, uh, they're messy, but they're incredibly powerful, right? Um, because again, you have people that are motivated for reasons that are non-monetary or non-financial. Um, and I think it's hard to underestimate the power of that. Um, and because also communities are typically kind of easy to join, they can grow really quickly too. Um, so again, Jay, like... <sighs> I'm not, I never consider myself an expert in community building or anything like this. Um, but I think that crypto and Web3 gives people the tools to organize these communities in super powerful and super rapid ways. Um, also, with a huge amount of room for experimentation, like, and quick experimentation too. And I think oh, yeah. that's the other thing that, like, is kind of wild. Like, you can't, you can't get a Fortune 500 company stood up very quickly. Kind of takes a long time, right? Yes. <laughs> but you can get a community stood up really quickly and some and like you learn from what's working and I think that power of rapid iteration is like really the probably the most powerful thing um, that we've got going for us. 
Mm-hmm. So when you're when you're you know speaking about your community and the community and there's a lot of communities around there that support Uma. There's not just one. What's the best way that you guys have found to to not just incentivize but be inclusive to these communities? Um, is it is it do you have community outreach managers or do you you know just kind of use your governance protocols or or what's the ways that that you find yourself? Because I know you have community people that are doing it, but how do you like to have information come to you at the very top? Well, there isn't really a very top. That's the the fun thing too, right? Um, uh, like. I won't lie. Um, I don't spend a lot of time in Discord because I find it completely overwhelming. And like, I just find it completely overwhelming, to be honest. Um, but like, we, we have a, a kind of a core team at UMA that there are community managers here that are um, involved in the community and kind of aggregate feedback and thoughts um, and push them around. I don't want to say bubble them up because there really isn't a hierarchy. It's more like, hey, you know, we're getting this feeling or a sentiment and they kind of push it around to, to temperature check things. And again, like there's real trade-offs here. Some of this stuff is very inefficient, right? Like you've got information flowing kind of sideways through an organization and kind of people opining on it. And you can, you know, at times I get like found sort of frustrated and envious of like a very you know, from the top type command where things get done. But like your kind of point, Jay, is like there's just trade-offs here. And I think this sort of community-centric approach has a lot of power behind it and has let us accomplish things that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Alan, what's your... What, yeah. Can I so switch a little bit? Because yeah, I think community is really interesting. Um, one of the things that I think I find interesting about crypto at the moment is that there are different kinds of communities. There's communities behind protocols, communities behind um, like different maxism. Um, and there's a community that you're a part of that I think is referred to often, but rarely spoken about. And that's the community of sort of like, I guess they're more mostly usually affect, affectionately referred to as OGs. Is like some of the true builders who started out long ago building a lot of the the key protocols. And one of the things that we hear from our community of like business leaders is, funnily enough, who are usually you know insiders in their own businesses in their own realms. They look at crypto and they're like, "This is amazing. This is cool." They usually start investing, and then they're like, "Hold on a second. I'm not an insider, and I might." maybe my investment theses aren't playing out sometimes because I'm not getting an early enough look or, you know, I feel like there's something going on behind the scenes that, that, that I'm not a part of. And it seems like, you know, crypto has, there has, there, it has developed such that there is a bit of an, an insider community. It's, I think, very largely mostly benevolent, but there are people who, who tend to, uh, you know, make a lot of early wise investments like yourself. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that community? And then I'd love to know, you know, I think as a, as retail investors, um, are we just at the OGs? Are we, are we, a you know, a, a reed blowing in the wind? Are there ways to like read the tea leaves? Now I'm mixing metaphors, apologies. Um, but you know, um, can you read the tea leaves blowing in the wind? Um, 
Yeah, I'd just love to know a little bit more about your experience with some of those those communities. Yeah. All right. So my my wisest investments have just been Bitcoin and Ethereum, just to start off there. Um, and again, not even like super early on Ethereum, like not even nearly as early as I should have been, right? But um, I, I think that the the maxim maxi the, the the maximum of like just the idea that like winners keep winning um i think is is true in the space too um so yeah alan like there's this concept and i think it's really weird and antithetical to uh crypto where there are um angel investors that are like insiders in crypto and it doesn't even make sense right um and by the way I would actually argue that a lot of reason for that is probably a shitty regulatory framework that like makes it scary for projects to even accept money from like their broader community. Like I'll, I'll actually go back and say that I think this is a, I think it's pretty messed up that you have communities of people that want to invest and for ineffective and outdated regulatory reasons, they can't actually accept their money. They have to go to accredited investors just to protect their own ass, right? And that sucks. Yeah. Um, do you think LBPs, sorry, just aside on that one, do you think that LBPs, some of these things are going to start to, like, for non-American um, investors, LBPs will become much more popular? Certainly there's been a big uptick recently. I don't know. Like, the LBP thing, um, I, I really I really don't know. Um, I, I, like, uh, you know, I have... In terms of like my my investing in other crypto projects, right? Like the other thing that I've been told a long time ago that I haven't done all the time is just really smart people that are in my network, like invest in them, you know? And yeah. um, I'll tell you that I can think of, and I won't name names, but there are like three people that I really, really, really should have invested in. And I just didn't for whatever reasons. And it would have been, um, transformational in my life type thing, right? Um, um, but I think what's happened in crypto and the insider thing is that you actually, there is this like, it, what makes crypto such a weird industry compared to, I think, um, what a lot of like YPO people would be involved in is how much you talk to each other and how much like, how, how close you are with the founders or the leadership of other projects and how you're not really competing at all. You're kind of all just building this stuff together. And because of that, I think that like I have opportunities to um, potentially invest in other projects um, that are started by people that I've known in the network of builders or people I operate with. And um, that does seem like uh, like maybe unfair. Um, I, yeah, but I and again, I don't. I really try to not actually spend too much time investing because I think the point is you should be building, right? I, yeah, I like yeah. the fact that even though you know all these people, <clears throat> and and still you 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 know you can have a lot of misses <laughs> in this industry because yeah. there's so there's so many brilliant people, and I think that it's um, you know, and again, this is my own personal thoughts. There's so much brilliance. There's so much opportunity. You can build a better mass mousetrap. And be insanely successful just in some very simplistic ideas, and and there's not always a, a right and wrong reason why some of these are taking off. Yep. You know, talking about the early days of, of, of Ethereum and the fact that you've been there, what what lessons have you kind of seen from 
you know, what they're trying to do from, from Gen 1 to, to Gen 2 is they're trying to move from proof of work to proof of stake. Have you seen any, you know, kind of lessons that I think any other developers can take that like either A, this was a huge win to do or, or B, this is maybe some of their challenges? And ETH people, please, you know, just turn it off now. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I am very supportive of Ethereum. And like, why? Why am I very supportive of Ethereum? Um, I think they have a visionary leader who is like, truly a f- fascinating human being and one of like like I think Vitalik is just this incredible dude that has a huge brain and means well which is like a in fairly unique combination um and I think what they really did right is they they had great ideas that they executed on pretty well early on and then built this amazing community behind them like Ethereum should have died a billion, a bunch of times on the path here, but they haven't because of their community. Kind of to your point earlier, Jay. Um, yeah. And their community is so strong that it creates network effects. And those network effects aren't just with the community, but those network effects are with like developer tooling, and now with like the EVM and like all all this stuff because people are so supportive of it. Um, and so you know, I think the pattern here it's it's honestly not rocket science. It's like have a great idea, have a, a well-articulated vision for where that great idea can go, um, build the, the first version of it and execute on that well, and then have a great community that supports that idea and then just keep going, you know? Um, and I think that's all that these crypto projects should do in general. Um, I think, or any business, frankly, I think that's like what you're supposed to do. Can I bug you about tokenomics? <laughs> <laughs> of course. And, and, you know, I, I hear it constantly that there's, you know, when you deploy a coin and you, you have, you know, all the best intentions and you've done all this math, even years later now, do you feel that, that UMA's, you know, tokenomics were correct? Or do you feel that you're, you're seeing something different today in the future that you would have implemented? But what, it, what is kind of your sweet spot right now um, as far as the, the theory around tokenomics? Um, both views are true, right? So let's like, we started UMA back in 2018 when tokens were actually a dirty word, having your own token was a bad thing. Um, and why was that? Well, following like the ICO kind of craze of 17, like tokens were just bullshit, whatever mechanisms. And like we, so I had a contrarian view that I actually think properly designed like keyword properly designed tokens are the most interesting thing about crypto um and i thought it was like this this sort of this like why do you have a token tokens are bad tokens are evil i thought was like a really uh weird reaction and um not effective and we spent a lot of time early on thinking through like we didn't we don't have a token just to have a token it's actually totally core to the security of the UMA protocol, the way our token operates. And I won't get into it right now unless you want to about all the token economics, about how it all works. But like we had a, in a, a, an actually different token design where we're like, hey, the value of our token directly relates to how much value our Oracle can secure. Um, and we can prove this with math. And we have like real math and we have PhD economists and we have like real theory behind how this all works. And I think Jay, that was like one of the best things we did because when we did go and launch our token, it had a reason to exist. Um, 
And we did this before the concept of a governance token existed. And I actually, I, I will kind of give credit to Robert Leshner and Compound for being the first governance token to really come out there. There might be others involved, but like, I'm a big fan. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Leshner and like a friend of his. But the comp, the, the Compound approach of saying, "Hey, we're going to get this governance token out there," was I think actually pretty brilliant but was a different token design and kind of created a reason for why you could have a token again um, that didn't exist for a while. And that led to a whole other wave of projects where, um, where it began to make the token economics like more, less meaningful, let's say. Because now anyone could go, and like again, I'm not critiquing Leshner here. I think the compound governance token makes a ton of sense. But it introduced this idea now that anyone could create a like worthless governance token and attach to their project. And we kind of are beginning to have like some feelings like the ICO boom of 2017, where these tokens might not have a purpose. Very long answer. You just described 99% of NFTs. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yeah. So I, I, I think again, like there's a spectrum here. Um, there's a lot of like worthless and unthoughtful token economics out there. There's also an approach to say, hey, we don't know what our token economics are going to be yet, but here's our governance token and it's going to evolve into this thing. I don't think that's totally wrong, right? But I frankly think that should have like, um, should probably be less valuable then somebody has already said, hey, here's how the token economics like will work or should work. And they're much more like concrete and buttoned down. Who's, who's tokenomics, and I'm going to go for more modern, something that's launched in the last maybe 24 months that, that you think really got it right? Um, and, it, it, there's, and there's so many amazing out there, but I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, well, it's interesting too, sorry, while you're thinking hard, it's interesting too that like, the view of whether it's right or wrong really changes over time. Like if you look at Curve for the longest time, people were like, whoa, that's terrible tokenomics. That's just terrible. And then all of a sudden Convex comes along and all of a sudden the Curve Wars break out and it's like, whoa, this is the new, now everybody's going to vote escrow. But, you know, it, just the the adaptation over time is is also amazing. Sorry, yeah, I'm just buying it, you some time. Buying no, you time. but it makes your head hurt, right? Like we could spend another couple <laughs> hours talking about that. Um, you know, like I'm not a fan of Curve's token economics. I think the idea of forcing most or asking most people to lock their tokens for four years, I actually like this is like the finance guy in me from my finance background. I think of the concept of liquidity premium. And it's like, well, wait, if like I have to lock something for four years, it should trade at a discount because I don't have liquidity, right? Um, and like, I look at it as like, in my personal opinion, I, I, I would like, I'm not, um, I'm not buying curve because I don't want to lock it for four years. And so if, unless I'm a tiny minority, if there are other people like me, curve is underperforming their potential because there are other buyers that like, aren't buying because of this four year lock thing. And like, listen, there's a million other opinions around this too, that like, I'm not saying that I'm, I've got a complete story, but I think that's like a really interesting example, Alan, of like, you're right. The, the opinion of that, the narrative around like whether curve was well-designed or not has changed. It flip-flopped dramatically. Um, yeah. 
And then, of course, there's all like the let's call them like Ponzi like uh, or Ponzi light um, kind of like ohm or or related things that, again, I'm like, anytime I see something with a thousand percent APY, I'm like, OK, we're playing a video game here. It could be a really fun video yeah. game, um, but there's something video game ish. Right. Um you know, Jay, I'm going to answer your question and say I don't think anyone's got it right yet. I think there's so much room to do better. Um, I think that's I think that's a great it, answer. Um, Uniswap, Uniswap, um, I think did a really great job responding to Sushi I, again. Maybe some of your leadership uh, or viewership, we should go back and be like, okay, Uniswap didn't have a token. We're, remind them what happened here. Uniswap didn't have a token. Sushi comes out of nowhere and says, we're going to like put a token. We're going to fork Uniswap and put a token into it. Sushi looks like they're going to destroy Uniswap, the like crown jewel of all of DeFi. Right. Um, And then Uniswap brilliantly responds with their own token design in a very short period of time. And, you know, I know the Uniswap team pretty well. They, they did not have that queued up and ready to go. They like, burned the candle at both ends for like three weeks straight and came up with a brilliant response. Right. And we're watching the same thing happen right now with looks rare. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But Uniswap then like, then I'll, I'll critique them. So I, I like will compliment them and say they launched this, like their airdrop I think was brilliant. It was another like uh, DeFi summer. They're critical to it. Uh, They've been critical to the success of DeFi, but then their token has languished. Right. And I think um, why has it languished? Like, I'm not talking about price here, but in terms of like actually like using their token, why haven't they turned on the fee switch? Why haven't they done the things that they're supposed to do? Probably regulatory stuff is what I'm going to say. It's probably the answer. Right. But again, like it's sort of like a failure of the community, too, because the community should actually be pulling that power out of Uniswap. And being like, hey, you guys don't even have the power anymore. We're going to make these decisions for you and be pushing their tokens forward. So, yeah, I'm going to say nobody's gotten token economics right. Um, people have done different projects have done, and including us. We haven't gotten our token economics perfect by any means. But people have done bits and pieces. And then what we've got is like to put the whole thing together into some like brilliance. So, uh, Hart. You know, again, speaking to 30,000, you know, business leaders around the world, as as we're trying to bring ourselves, our families, and our companies into Web3, adopting cryptocurrencies, blockchain technologies, what are the first steps that really people should be taking when they want to learn about this new asset class in a responsible way, knowing that a good majority of the things that we see out there are garbage and FUD? Yeah, man. Um, taking the framing of your question, right? So you're like uh, TradFi business, Fortune 500 company, whatever it might be, right? And you sense opportunity because people are talking about this crypto and this Web3 thing. And I think it's only natural for those leaders to be like, hey, what can we do here? Like, what makes sense? Um, And what we talked about earlier is like, if you're like a bank, I don't think for a million reasons that mainly your compliance and regulatory departments will tell you, I don't think you can go and just plug in DeFi into your bank. Um, Not yet, not for a while. But I I think there are a lot of things relating to rewards and incentive programs that might be really interesting to pursue. And, you know, I'm not the expert on NFTs at all, um, 
but like ignore the NFT kind of hype for a second. The broader idea of programming an incentive program that is actually like um, uh, decentralized and um, maybe tradable. Um, I think there's really interesting concepts there too. And, and it's kind of like, I think from, for, if I'm in a traditional business and I'm thinking like, okay, let's go back and look at like what Uber Eats and uh, DoorDash and Postmates all did, you know, they gave people a hundred bucks of free food to go and use their, uh, their programs. I don't know if you guys remember that, but it was like yep. best thing yep. ever spending VC money to get like free food. It was just great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, okay, like in some ways there, there was an innovation there. They were innovating with, um, how to like their, their, their CAC, right? They're, they're acquiring customers and then hoping that the churn would be lower than the cost it was to acquire them. And um, incredibly competitive war to win. Crypto lets you do all these other crazy things in an even more flexible way where you could design incentive and rewards programs that maybe don't even cost you a hundred bucks. Maybe you're giving away some other like uh, some token that's redeemable for future service or future action or some token that goes up in value if your business metrics go up, like our KPI options. I actually kind of think that um, that if I was a traditional business leader, I'd be thinking much more deeply about rewards programs and how uh, crypto might be able to let you do something different than what you've been previously able to uh, to offer. KPI options is a really interesting part of what you guys do. Alan, are you able to expand on that a little little bit um, from our from you know your perspective, and then Hart can correct you on everything. I mean, it's fascinating. It's a there's been a lot of innovation in crypto. You see it, but I'd say that like nine times out of ten, it looks like something from. I mean, I'm a DeFi guy, so it looks like something from TradFi that's been imported into into DeFi, and it's you know there's an analogy. Um, to me, KPI options um, are much more interesting because they align um, something which we know very well in the corporate world, which is like, how well are you doing your job? I'm going to judge you. Your bonus will be judged based on this key performance indicator. And that can be anything from, and like every job, you know, technically if you're running a business properly, every job should have its KPIs and here's what I need you to do. Here's what you need to do to be successful in this job. Spell it out. Everybody wins. Um, the beautiful part about it in what, what Uma's designed is that you can use the optimistic Oracle to basically capture any sort of provable outcome to say, if we can achieve this together, then there's an incentive built in. And it's this beautiful uh, bridging between kind of real world and, and crypto world, uh, you know, incentives and systems. I guess the, for me, one of the, one of the, one of the issues with crypto is that uh, I think when most people are, are first exposed to it, their mind immediately goes to like, well, what could this be doing in the real world? And it could be amazing to like, whatever, track energy usage. I mean, what could it do for like climate change and tracking climate change? Uh, or, I mean, there's a million things that you can think of, but where crypto is at at the moment is crypto for crypto. 
And what I mean by that is like most DeFi exists just for crypto users. It doesn't really go outside. The protocols that have tried to really branch across to like real world non-crypto stuff haven't been terribly successful thus far, I would argue. Um, and I think it's a long, I personally think it's a long time coming, but it, maybe KPI options are one of the things that that could align some of those incentives. Like you said, like hundred bucks of free food, you align the incentive as long as it's easy enough to attain. Maybe those are some of the, you know, some of the ways that you start to build those, those bridges between, you know, the, the meat space and crypto. I shouldn't yeah. call it a meat space. It's too Twitter. It's too, uh, People who uh, are aware are going to be like, man, you're a weird guy. <laughs> I, I love that word. I love the, like, yeah. I, Alan, the only thing I'd add that I think is kind of fun is like, uh, you know, there's been in TradFire traditional businesses um, ways to motivate individual incentives. Like, hey, if, you know, like a coupon, it's like an individual incentive. The thing that I think is kind of fun about the KPI options idea is it's a way to motivate collective uh, collective actions. Mm. Um yeah, that's true. which that's is cool. Again, the design space just gets bigger here. So yeah. So so if I have a DAO and I want to incentivize users to do something, but I, I I'm not interested in just dropping them more tokens. What what would how would that look like um, if I if I want more user engagement? Yeah, let's say we have this DAO. Um, let's put parameters around this. Say there's a uh, uh, 200 people in this DAO, something like that. Yep. Um, we'll make it relatively small. And you say, hey, guys, we really want to get um, 10 new integrations this month. Um, and for every integration, you each KPI option represents a payout between 0 and 10 um, tokens, underlying tokens. If we get 10 integrations, you get 10 tokens. If we get 0, you get 0. If we get 5, you get 5. You know, get the deal. And you airdrop those to your 200 people. And you say, hey, let's see what happens. right? Um, and those 200 people... Um, it, there's there's all sorts of problems here because there's also a free rider problem now where I could be one of those mm. people and be like, yeah, I can't do anything. Like, I'm just going to sit here and like don't care or whatever else, right? Uh, but um, there are other people here that are going to be like, this is cool. I like this community. If they like the community, I'm going to try to get the max payout here. Um, and I'm not even going to worry about the free rider too much. The, the free rider here, like, who cares? Like, next time around, we won't give them the option or the opportunity to participate. Um, and that's it. There you go. Um, you've got an incentive structure. I love it. I absolutely love it. I know within the superhumans, one of the things that was cool was that some people who are like, hey, I just feel I don't have the time or effort to um, put into this. But I see this dude is killing himself. Some of those people actually sent them some of their KPI options. It was really cool. That is really I was cool. really, I don't know. I think there was, I had a tear coming down. It was like, <laughs> so beautiful. So um, to, to, to bring this, you know, wrap this guy up here. Hart, you, again, we, uh, Alan's given you OG status, which you very much deserve. <clears throat> you're in the space and, and uh, you know, that means you're, if you're not on Discord, you're probably spending more time somewhere else. What, what are you seeing? Give me, you know, one or two kind of just things that you think are super cool that you've seen uh, projects, protocols, NFTs, anything that you just kind of had to go, wow. Yeah. So first off, I don't trade JPEGs. I wish I did. Or I should have, but I just don't trade JPEGs. So I don't have any. I don't have any intel there. Um, and I'll also say, like, 
uh, on maybe just a, a note of like kind of where we are in the cycle and something I'm kind of interested in from a macro perspective, it's not totally obvious to me what the next narrative in crypto or Web3 is right now. Like we had the DeFi narrative, um, which is then like kind of by many accounts, the DeFi narrative is like slowing here quite a bit. Um, we've had the NFT narrative kind of take it off again had play to earn kind of had DAOs, but like i'm not totally obvious like what the next big story in crypto is going to be i personally think DeFi will be part of that like DeFi's kind of built this infrastructure now that is going to like power it's going to power nfts it's going to power play to earn it's going to power all of these other things um but i think much in the same way that um finance, financial innovations, there have been brief periods in like the history of finance where the innovation was actually a financial innovation, but otherwise finance powered other things, you know? Um, so, so like this sort of uh, me leading in and saying that I'm not like super stoked about that much right now. Like I'm, I'm a little bit more neutral. Um, I do think all of these layer twos, that are coming online are a big deal to help scale Ethereum. Um, and I think that there will be, even though teams like Optimism say there won't be a token, I'm sure there will be. Um, all these like layer twos will have their own token. And I think that will be an extremely interesting uh, space to watch in terms of how those layer twos try to compete, out-compete each other with, with their tokens. Um, uh, I think... That's something that I'm paying attention to. And then I, I think um, this DeFi 2.0 wave that had some of these other structures, some of which have taken a hit right now, I think a lot of those incentive structures are going to get programmed in to other parts of crypto and Web3. And I mean programming and refined. So how can we build, use some of the things from Olympus or Ohm, some of those structures to incentivize people to hodl tokens, uh, to hold their tokens for better rewards, but in a more balanced way. Um, and I, I want to stay on the lookout for that. Um, across, I do think across like this L2 bridge we built is super interesting. Um, it will have a token that will be community owned. Um, we don't totally know the, that design yet, but people should join the community because I think the community's the community's going to own this thing. Um, those are my alpha leaks. Uh, so I don't have more. I, I, right. I, I love it. As long and, and as long as I got you, and, and again, just with the insights you have, how are you finding talent? I, that's mm -hmm. that, it's just across the board. I mean, I, I take you know twenty emails a day with people and saying, "Do you have anyone? Do you have anyone?" Are, you guys have this amazing dev team. Is it the same team you started with, or are you like, like trying to? How are you recruiting? Um, so we had uh, we've had like two eras in our business, like pre-COVID and post-COVID, right? And I think we had a lot of stability, kind of pre-COVID, bunch of turnover, and then we've had a lot of stability since the early days of COVID. And um, you know, Jay, like it's kind of community again. Like you create a you create a vibe, you create a culture, and it becomes you know to quote some like cheesy uh, uh, cheesy things like it's anti fragile. You know um, we we have um, an org now of people that are really good, and they attract more really good people. 
And it doesn't mean it's still not hard to attract those other really good people. We have our own hiring problems, but um, I yeah, like pinch myself at our good fortune of having a core team of, of really exceptional and talented people because they're the only reason we have any chance in hell of recruiting other talented people. That's mm. amazing. Yeah, well said. And I guess yeah. that's kind of a almost a scary part of crypto is there's there's also, I think in some DAOs, you see the inverse happening, uh, you know, where there's this sort of general decay, um, which is kind of, I guess, as like retail investors, if you can get a, a, a handle on like who's really building and it's, it's, it's a bit of a, a cliche in crypto, like, oh, you know, invest in the builders, but it's true. Um, the people who get their heads down and build interesting product and do interesting things um, that especially if it's composable and there are other things being built on it, that's where a lot of the value accrues, I think, in the in the longer run. And you can't do it without without a, a great team and and solid uh, structure of devs and and folks that are actually doing the building, right? Yeah, and some structure. Like again, I think a lot of the org structures in crypto are so um, new um, and maybe immature. Right, that there okay. there are some things we've learned in like the history of software development of like, hey, you can't go and write all the code in a silo by yourself. Like, you, you gotta like, how do you work on a team? How do you actually do write software that like write code that makes sense to the rest of your team that fits with the product people that like all this kind of stuff. And I, I think um, I'm bullish on the teams that do have some semblance of structure to keep people pointed in the same direction rather than just like, you know, pl- splatter, like throw shit at total, the ball. Total, total decentralization. And we I hear totally that a lot. The, the, rush to de- the, the rush to decentralize a focused team is, is hurting a lot of the protocols out there. So I really love hearing that out of you. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and I, lo- I, like, I, I also think, you know, you 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 look at some of these these teams and it's like trying to have you ever been to your like apartment owners group meeting and you try <laughs> to decide whether like the building should have new like awnings or something i mean nothing can get decided anytime forever and that's kind of what it, i think we're gonna at the moment i think we're still at like internet 1.0 where everybody's like yeah this is fun this is great there's a good vibe and we're all pitching in but the moment that it ceases to be that and it becomes a job, which it will at some point for a lot of people, you're going to end up with this like awning problem. Yeah, Alan, I, I am, I'm going to go ahead and on this show, anytime that there is a total dysfunctional DAO, we're going to start referring to them as HOAs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Hart, I really, really appreciate you coming on. It's been absolutely fabulous. Why uh, Whales, I, I appreciate you putting up with Alan and I uh, for this afternoon. Uh, Hart with Uma. Uh, Hart, how can, if people want to uh, uh, engage uh, with Uma or any of your other side projects, what's the best way to um, to get a hold of, uh, not just you, but your, your team? Is that through Discord, Twitter, where are they at? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I'm, I'm Hal, H-A-L 2001 um, at Twitter. Um, for uh, Uma, join our Discord or follow our Twitter handle. It's on our website, umaproject.org. Um, for Across, this bridge we're building too, I really do think that people should join the community because we're going to give away ownership to the community. Um, and they should also use the bridge because it works really well. Um, and that website yeah. is across.2, across.to. Awesome. Awesome. 
Thank you guys. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks a lot, guys. Why Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. Why Whales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com. Why Whales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.